Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and today is one of our special episodes on our series of the Road to the ION Toronto Conference. If you haven't heard, we are partnering with ION, which is the International Orality Network, to work together towards the Toronto Conference we're having in October. And we're excited for this series to be able to talk to some of the leaders and to some of the speakers that will be there and to hear a bit of their stories and to talk a little bit about what does orality mean for them. And so today we have a very special guest, Jonathan Markle. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so glad that we have an opportunity to chat. Now, whereabouts are you right now? I live on a Mohawk community called Tyendinaga in uh, southeastern Ontario. And it is called the land of the peacemaker because this was the place where the beginning of the Haudenosaunee people of the Iroquois Confederacy was founded here. Mm-hmm. And it was all based around the great law of peace, which seems kind of ironic that I come from a community that has such ancient and awesome history. Oh, very cool. I love that name, by the way. <laughs> I would say that's a very gospel name. <laughs> I don't know if it came from a gospel yeah, room, but say. yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> Anyways, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners about who you are? My name is Jonathan Maracle. I'm the son of Andrew C. Maracle Sr., who was a missionary for 55 years to First Nations people across North America. I was born in a village called Aquazusne Mohawk Territory, which is down in upstate New York, Quebec and Ontario. It's, it's on all three areas. So it's between two countries and three provinces, so to speak. Okay. As a young boy, I lived there for about 13 years and then um, grew up in the rest of my days, mostly in Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory here in Ontario. My Mohawk name is Oranyadeka, which means the heavens on fire. My mm. father gave me that name at 13. I'm not quite... At the time, it blew me away. I didn't know what to prepare for and what what it meant in my life. But I know that my dad knew something special was going to happen. Prophetic. Yeah. And so I've been on an amazing time. I mean, I I didn't serve the Lord until I became 30 when I gave my heart to Jesus. Uh, I was suicidal at the time, living in Hollywood, California. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a heavy metal rock singer. Wow. (laughs) And I love that. I left home to seek my fortune. I can remember the last thing my father said to me before I left Canada. He said, when your back's against the wall and you have nowhere to turn, call it on Jesus. And I'm glad he gave me those last words of wisdom because at the time I told him I don't need Jesus. But then two and a half, almost three years later, when my back was against the wall and the drugs and the partying and the drinking and the the social life had gotten the best of me and I had become lonely and broken and depressed and mm. just didn't even want to live anymore. And um, I can remember sitting at my desk and placing my face in my hands and saying, Jesus, help me. Mm. The phone rang. It was my father and I hadn't spoke to my dad in over two and a half years. So no coincidence as far as I'm concerned. And so it was a a life-giving phone call. I didn't accept Christ at the time, but some really amazing things happened over the next month or so that caused me to actually fall in love with Jesus. Mm. That's the basic me. (laughs) I have five brothers. I have four children, and I have a lovely wife named, I call her Lovely Linda. And so we have have an amazing family, and great things are happening my desire is to 
walkout division that God has placed in my life since my father gave me the opportunity to be a sent one when he, as an apostle, told me that I needed to go tell my people that they needed to know who Jesus was because he died for them and he is the only one who can save them from the issues that they face. Yes. And to go to the non-native people and tell them that they need to be forgiven by the First Nations people for the atrocities and the cultural genocide and the personal physical genocide of a people group that only just needed to know the love of Jesus mm. in order to become a part of this wonderful thing called the body of Christ. Yes. What a journey God has led you on from Ontario down to Hollywood and now back. Yeah. Do you feel that and coming back, did that give you a deeper sensitivity to some of the issues that First Nations people were facing? Well, it gave me a sensitivity to the fact that with Jesus, all things are possible. Yes. And without Jesus, you're on your own. As a child of God who didn't know Jesus, I had no idea that the hope and that peace was available to me until I literally got my back up against the wall and cried out. So mm-hmm. right now, like here in Canada, one out of every two Native children lives in abject poverty. Right. And when you think of one out of every two Native children in that kind of situation, so that's how I would relate the the pain and suffering that I had before Christ and the friend that's closer than a brother that's with me all the time after having Christ. and my purpose and desire is to deliver that really awesome message to to my people and to also deliver all the other things of understanding of self-respect and dignity and the things that we need to not be ashamed of who God created us to be. But mm-hmm. we need to be able to embrace who created us to be because it's in the understanding of who we are that our destiny unfolds. Because without an identity, it's very difficult to achieve a destiny. I like that. So could you share a little bit about your journey into ministry and becoming a leader among First Nations and, and Native communities? At the time when the, the launching into ministry happened, I was from 1985 when I gave my heart to Jesus till 1995. I was, I was a worship leader and I, you know, worked at my music and worked at music in general and, and just did the thing according to the Euro-American culture mm-hmm. and, you know, saying Maranatha and, and saying, you know, the other different songs that came out by the, the current worship leaders of the day. And then in 1995, I got a phone call from some people putting together a gathering called the Sacred Assembly in Ottawa. And the, the Sacred Assembly was being formed by Elijah Harper, who was a member of Parliament. And as he was putting that together, he was doing that because the highest rate of suicide in the world is among our First Nations here in Canada, wow. in Ontario specifically. And the struggles of alcoholism, family dysfunction, poverty, and all these things that are third world issues that are very parallel and completely comparable to Haiti, which is the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere. So knowing all that, Elijah Harper was desperate to help his people. And how I came into this was just pretty ironic because I wasn't one of the spiritual leaders. I wasn't one of the people who 
he was calling on to help to enlighten and to help to bring their minds together so that many minds and hearts could come up with a a plan to bring healing to the First Nations people. I was just called to come and sing Amazing Grace in Mohawk, in my language, on my drum. And very interesting that the drum was never really used in church in our Native communities. It was always considered an evil instrument. And the rattles were evil and the regalia was evil. So, you know, Native people were taught by the missionaries and by white folks that we needed to completely dispense our way of life and the way God created us and embrace them, their culture. So basically, our people received a cultural conversion message for almost 250, 300 years that that who God created us to be was not worthy. Mm. As a result, you have a people that are born with dark skin, dark eyes, and dark hair, and who by history have a completely different worldview than the dominant society, being told that who they are is not of God. And so you have this people group in complete dysfunction and impoverished and broken. And so when Elijah Harper made this call for people to come and asked me to come and sing Amazing Grace in Mohawk. Well, I was excited to go do it, not so much about the singing Amazing Grace in Mohawk, but being there among who would I consider to be the most high-end spiritual people in the country coming together to do a think tank. And this was not limited to just Christian people. He was inviting all spiritual leaders because he was so desperate that he just was asking anybody that might have an idea that could help to come. And so they all gathered. And on this one night, this was my night to sing Amazing Grace. And I was there and there was different leaders that were speaking. And at the time, a leader named John Sanford, who was Osage and the founder and leader of a ministry called Elijah House. And and his focus was inner healing, inner healing of men, spiritual inner healing. And he had written probably a couple dozen books and was quite an interesting fellow. And I was half First Nations. And so he was there and he was speaking and he made a statement as I was sitting there preparing to go up and sing Amazing Grace. He made a statement. He said, walls of bitterness have been built in the hearts of the indigenous people of the world because of the acts of the colonial empires as they came in and displaced and abused the different people groups, he said, and these walls of bitterness that are in their hearts must be broken. And in that moment, I received a revelation from the Holy Spirit. And I wrote a song called Broken Walls right on the spot. 10 minutes later, as as I wrote the song, I I look up and they're calling my name to come up and sing Amazing Grace in Mohawk. Well, I went up and instead of singing Amazing Grace, I sang this song that was just given to me by revelation by the Holy Spirit. Mm. sang the song And the place was very, very emotionally charged. And this lady behind me tapped me on the shoulder on the stage and said, I'm a pastor from Quebec and I need to share something with the people. And so I handed her the microphone and she said, my grandmother, we discovered my grandmother was Cree. She said, and our family, which was a Quebecois family in Quebec City, she said, we tried our best to hide the fact that we had Cree blood polluting our our Quebecois. And she began to cry and weep uncontrollably. And she said, 
I'm so sorry for our arrogance and our attitude, and and I apologize to the to the Cree people that are here and say, will you please forgive me and my family for our arrogance and our attitude? And at that moment, a girl got up on the far side of the auditorium. There was probably between six and eight hundred people in the auditorium, and this girl got up and she shouted, "I'm Dene from the Northwest Territories," and she threw mm-hmm. her fist in the air and she said, "I forgive you." Wow, that's powerful. The place just came apart. A First Nations chief got up from the very back of the room and walked to the front, and he took the microphone, and and he just stood there, held the mic for like what seemed like an hour, but it was probably maybe 30 seconds before he said anything. And then he said, I've always hated white people for what they've done to my people. Mm. He said, but today... I never want to hate white people again. I never want to hate again. So I'm asking for forgiveness (laughs) to the white folks that I've... And then right after that, a girl on the right side, a a lady said she was the daughter of a residential school headmaster. And she came up and she she said, I didn't think because I, I wasn't the one who did it, that I had no responsibility, she said. But I realized that I need to get up on behalf of my family and ask forgiveness for the wow. things that happened under my father's leadership. And so for two and a half hours, people kept coming up and expressing their offenses and their desire for forgiveness. And, and it was absolutely an amazing time. And so that was the beginning of my walk into what I call the contextual movement or contextual ministry. Because the Holy Spirit also showed me as I played my drum singing that song that the drum was the symbol of the restoration of the First Nations people of North America. Yes. And so I've based my music and everything around the drum and the chants and the historical way that our people would have honored the Creator before the white man told them. Mm. that everything about him was evil. In other words, before they even thought about it, they said, God created an evil people. Right. You know, basically, that's what they said to other people. And so our people were devastated because these spiritual people supposedly were telling him these things. And many of our people took it to heart and tried to do anything they could to get away from being First Nations. And sure. I actually have a friend who had dark skin he was uh, Oneida, and before he gave his heart to Jesus, one day he got in the tub with a wire brush, and he tried to wash the darkness off his skin. Oh, wow. That in, in a pool of blood, crying, trying to be somebody else, because that's the way society had conditioned him. Wow. That is such a powerful story. Yeah. Profound. It's profound. And so my battle is to is to help Canadians to realize because Canada and the church have successfully covered this up and ignored the cry of our First Nations people for decades and decades. And our people have died and squandered and family dysfunction and brokenness and you know, like the average Canadian child gets a certain amount of money every year for their education. And our children were supposed to be able to get just as good an education with 40% less per child. Mm. How can Canada live with the statistics and how they've treated their native children? 
they're they're First Nations people. But I say at the same time, I've never felt hope like I do today. Right. Never felt hope for tomorrow and for my people like I do today. And I've got tears in my eyes right now just thinking about the struggles that I've seen because in this ministry that I that I work in, I go into these villages. I go where the mums are. I sat with mums who are sitting at the side of the caskets of their children. Mm. I've sat with dads who, who are sitting crying beside the caskets of their 13-year-old girls who have committed suicide because there's just such a sense of nowhere to go, hopelessness, sexual sure. predatoring, just all the different kinds of things that would that would hurt people who are in a completely impoverished society. And that's mm. our people are still living in this today. Wow, I hear you. And you know, on our podcast, we normally focus on Canadian Asian issues and colonialism is something that we do talk about once in a while and how we have bought into cultural ideologies, narratives and how they have affected us especially unpacking the negative ways in which they have affected communities and cultures. And as I'm listening to your stories, I've never heard it in this way before. And this is really, um, you know, this is really uh, such a example of how reconciliation and justice needs to happen. But at the same time, you, as you're saying, that your hope is in God and how the Holy Spirit works. And you saw it at the Sacred Assembly. Yeah. And... In 1995, yeah. yeah, you saw God break through and you saw forgiveness happen. And hopefully that was a signpost and a step toward the right direction as God is moving in and amongst First Nations communities. Canada has had the, had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and we've had the, the awareness of the 5,000 murdered and missing Native women. Now, I, I like to always say about those type of things, 5,000 murdered missing Native women. Canada needs to recognize that 5,000 murdered and missing Native women are 5,000 murdered and missing women mm. of Canada. Yes. And we, we tend to say us and them all the time and not give our people that chance to have the opportunity to be recognized as worthy and valuable. So I'm really you know, happy that finally it's come a time when we're able to actually speak about these things. Because, you know, 15 years ago, John, when I would speak these kind of things, people would put me down. People would speak to me as though I was crying and complaining. And people say, well, you know, you Native people get taxes off and stuff like that. What kind of a level playing field is that? You guys have way more benefits than we do and stuff. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, you know, the ignorance that Canada's political agenda and Christian agenda has walked in mm. has just really, really been scarring to our people. And mm. I'm believing now that those scars are being removed as, as honor and truth are being revealed. And I see the goodness in the general population of Canadian people. I see people going, Oh wow, I didn't know that. And and I see the desire to start to make a difference. Sure. You know, and so I'm getting called in in so many different places now to be able to share these things so that 
people can be made aware of and we can bring a change to this horrible thing. And, and I really feel that in, in my lifetime, I would like to say that I saw the change and I'm mm. seeing the beginning of it for sure. Amen. I have no doubt that I'm in the beginning of a great transition that's going to be a blessing to the body of Christ because see, it's not just about it's for me, it's not just about the pulling my people out of poverty and giving them Jesus, but it's also about setting a vision in their hearts for their future. Because mm. one of my best friends who passed away recently, he said, no people group on earth is better positioned for world evangelism than the native American or the first nations. Wow. And the reason that he said that is because, all over the world, people love our culture. The sure. only place where our culture has been beaten down is under the, the control of the two colonial dominant societies, Canada and the United States, where they've taken control and and pushed us into small areas and taken away all the good the good that we had and didn't realize that our people were respected around the world because there was good things within our cultures that they didn't get to realize. And so all over the world, there are native groups like they're in Germany. I heard there's like 28 different clubs in Germany who practice being native every day. Like on the weekends, they wear full regalia and live in teepees and they love our people. We oh, go nice. to China. They love our people. We go to Tibet. We go to across Europe, they love our people. South America, they want to emulate the First Nations people. And our own people are strangers to themselves. Our own people here in Canada are trying to not be Native because that's what's been imposed upon them. Right. Yeah. I play all over the world. And, yeah. and, and when I go, I go and carry my message through the culture. And the people embrace us and all oh, Native Americans are coming. We start playing the drum and we introduce people to Jesus through our culture instead of running away from our culture and trying to act like another culture in order to carry the message. Sure. Because that was what we taught. But, you know, we I've pulled out my drum in Germany in the middle of Hamburg, Germany, and played in the middle of the square. And hundreds and hundreds of people come around to hear our songs and we sing songs that honor a good God and a God who gave us his son. And, and these people are just mystified by the fact And some of them come and say, how can you be native and be a Christian too? Mm. That's how much, how bad the teachings have been because they think that the way we were treated when we came over here, why would we ever want Christianity? Wow. Christian yeah. is a bad word in native country. It's either they embrace it lock, stock, and barrel and, and completely do it the Euro-American way, or they don't want anything to do with Christianity because Christianity to our people so many times was you have to give up being who you were created to be. I mm. ministered in maximum security state penitentiary in Rapid City, South Dakota, or Pierre, South Dakota. At the end of our concert and our speaking I got to speak to some of the prisoners and one of the prisoners came up, very tall Lakota man. And as it was his turn to speak to me, he opened the conversation by saying, I've always known that Jesus is the way he said, but I could never accept him. Mm. And I said, why not? Why not? He said, because I was told that in order for me to accept Jesus, I had to give up being Lakota. Right. The impact of a person having to give up 
who they are, who God created them to be, in order to have Jesus is not something that Euro-American people have ever had to deal with. I think as I'm listening to your story, I feel like there's a thread of redemption, a redemption of identity, a redemption for music itself. I mean, you were at one point doing heavy metal, and now you are using music as ministry. You've seen redemption for the drum, which is for me a big thing. I'm a drummer myself. But just to hear how you know the drum has been a big part of First Nations culture and how you've been able to see God use that to proclaim Him and to see that redemption. And that's so amazing to hear and how it's leading toward redemption, both in the context of reaching unreached people groups or different communities, but also at the same time for your own culture, how that has been part of your ministry as well. Actually, I did want to ask you about your music and your band, Broken Walls, and how did that get started? How did people come alongside you in terms of making music and the message that you guys hope to convey? Well, after I wrote the song Broken Walls, I realized that that now I had to follow that up and start to do music. And I was a business owner at the time, and I sold my business, did more work on my home so that my family would be comfortable and prepared myself to launch into the rest of my life as a fighter for justice and, and someone who would expose the enemy and his destruction in our people and to carry the message of love and peace and hope and joy to wherever I go. Well, I started writing songs and using the drum and and integrating. See, as growing up in the communities I grew up in, there was always Native traditional drumming and songs that I was uh, exposed to as a young man growing up. So I knew lots of songs and knew the way, but never did those things ever come to church. It was it was forbidden to have those things in church because, right. you know, I, I always say to people, you know, the church looks at our drums and our the church said that our drums were evil and not of God. And in many cases, missionaries came in and took the drums and burnt them. And I often pose the question to them, well, who made your drums? Where are your drums from? Right. And the 90, 85 to 90% of the drums in the world are made in Japan. So if the <laughs> right. church is going to look at my drum and say it's evil, then maybe they need to do a little research on all the instruments they play and where they come from. It's so simple thinking the way they brought accusation against our drums and our rattles, which were instruments that the Creator gave to us to use to worship Him. Over the years, I just kept writing and singing, and my wife played with me for several years and then traveled with me, and our family began to grow. And and as our family grew, it became more and more difficult to take our children on the road. So we made a decision that my wife would stay home and Mm -hmm. raise the children at home, and they would go to school, and I would continue the the work and the mission work and, you know, uh, using the music as a way to carry the message. But now I'm playing with two pretty amazing guys and playing with Bill Pagrand, who is a uh, school teacher, high school teacher, mm-hmm. who has been on leave for several years to be a part of Broken Walls. He also is a clinician with the QPR Suicide Prevention Program in the United States. And he is a world-class drummer who is, like when I say world-class, I, I'm not 
trying to be haughty in that. He is absolutely one of the greatest drummers I've ever played with. He's First Nations. He's Clinkett from Alaska. So Bill has been traveling with me, and so he brings his expertise in suicide prevention and his ability to uh, connect to high school students. And I bring my understanding of First Nations culture and the depth of it and the understanding of the drum and, and the depth of using our cultural musical stylizations to carry our message. And so Bill Bill has been with me for 13, almost 14 years now. and we travel internationally. We've played in 28 different countries around the world, as well as crisscross North America hundreds of times. The band has come together supernaturally, no question. I mean, Bill knew from a vision from God that he was going to be a part of Broken Walls long before I called him and asked him. Mm-hmm. And when the day I asked him, I just called and said, you know, this is Jonathan Merrick of Broken Walls. And wanted to ask you if you'd be interested in being a part of Broken Walls. And and he said, I knew you were going to call. He said, and I already know my answer. He said, I would love to be a part of it. And so ever since then, we toured and, and traveled. And we played in Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum to 100,000 people for Lou Engels to call. Mm-hmm. And we played in Ford Field in Detroit to 42,000 people. And plus, we've played in in Manly Hot Springs, Alaska, to 13 people. We do the same concert when we're playing in front of 10 or 15 people that we do when we're playing in front of 10 or 15,000 people because God is really interested in everybody and every soul is important. So when we go, we try to give our best in whatever situation we're in. And I'm finding now that God is starting to use us in in a larger and larger scale because more and more people can be affected. And we love to do the intimate gatherings, but it does seem as though the bigger gatherings are starting to happen because more people are listening now than ever before. And so for 24 years, I've had an active band traveling and touring and doing ministry and refining our experiences and our skills and our ability to carry this message without anger, without accusation, but carrying this message with love and understanding and educating those who had no idea that their own people were doing these things to our people. Sure. Sounds very much that God had redeemed the dream that you once had moving down to Hollywood and used it for his purposes. (laughs) And I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always say to people that, you know, I, I went down there and thinking I was going to be one of the world's greatest rock singers. I always had that in my heart to do that. And God just didn't allow that to happen. It just like every time I was on the cusp of the big break and something great going to happen, it seemed like the rug was pulled out from under me and I could never understand why. And when I met Jesus and realized that he had a greater purpose for the gift that he placed in my life, Mm -hmm. it was a real awakening for me to to use the gift and, and why He's prepared me the way he did. Yes. I did want to ask, for First Nations culture, why are stories and songs so important? How has it been a big part of your culture? Well, as you know, our culture is an oral society. Mm -hmm. And storytelling and all these different things are, they were a vital part because that was the way that we, we grew more. 
That was the way we changed. That was the way we learned about one another. You know, an oral society has a much deeper and broader memory. The memory of people from an oral society is just amazing. My father was an ancient elder. He was born in 1914, but he was connected to the ancient people in his life. And Mm -hmm. so when he would tell a story, I mean, he would tell a story and he would talk about day and date his stories and he would tell things that that seem like, how could you remember that? Sometimes, you know, the arrogance of the Euro-American has said that people from an oral society, well, they aren't, they just aren't as smart and they don't write and they haven't invented writing and stuff. And But I, I can counter that by saying my chief here in my community can get up and he can recite the history of our people verbatim and do it for two hours and everybody be astonished. And, mm-hmm. and he just uses that as an example of the wisdom and the intellectual ability that comes from being a, a leader in an oral society. Mm-hmm. And speaking of leadership, I also think that that's another part of uh, First Nations culture that would be a beautiful gift into the body of Christ and into modern society would be leadership wasn't something that you went out and tried to get votes for. And you went out and and did things to impress people in order to get them to vote for you so much as it was, it was by your conduct and by what you did that caused you to become a leader. It was because you cared for people around you. It was because you did the things that needed to be done mm. that people speak to look up to you. Like my, one of my favorite historical figures was crazy horse and, and he never sought to be a leader, but he became one of the greatest leaders in, in the world ever. Became right. one of the greatest leaders of the people group, and and he never asked anybody to follow him into battle. He never had to worry that all of the warriors were behind him. He never had to worry that he was alone because they all wanted to follow him because he did what was right. He made decisions based on what needed to be done, and people naturally followed him. That's the kind of leader I want to be, and that's the kind of you know I've never tried and strive for leadership. It's just something that happens when you start to fight and people start to recognize that you're willing to fight for what you believe, then there's a sense that people want to hear what you have to say. That's a good point. And I, I want to also bring it back to how you are also talking about how being an oral culture helped you to remember, helped you to identify as part of a, a longer narrative and a history and a story, but also in being able to do that, having a hope and imagination for where things can go and being able to work towards that and being able to be used by God towards those ends to see how he can redeem and restore things. And I I think that's something that is really needed in our society today. And especially coming from kind of a Western culture where, you know, being a more textual culture, that's something we can really learn from an oral culture. Yeah. Like it's not saying that being a writing culture, textual culture is bad. It's just saying that it tends to bring this arrogance and judgment that it needs to lay down and realize that there is good to be found in all things that Creator made. Sure. And hopefully it produces that sort of humility as we think about how do we understand how God has given us these good gifts for His purposes. And not to have that 
sense of pride in in a ridden culture, or even be blinded by thinking that like, oh, this thing is completely secular because you know it wasn't within our kind of paradigm or perspective. But actually thinking like, oh, maybe you know, like like the drum you're talking about, God gave the drum, <laughs> and how how can we use that for His glory? And I think this actually ties really well, actually, as we kind of finish off our time together into talking about this year's theme, which is embodying Jesus in a post-textual society. And this is a very cool collaboration that you have been able to be part of this year's North American Regional Conference in October, is because you are bringing to light what an oral culture brings and what, an or- what we can learn from an oral culture and what does it mean to truly embody Jesus in a post-textual society. And I want to ask, as you were invited to be part of this conference, what did that mean for you? What does this theme mean for you to be, to be able to embody Jesus in a post-textual society? Well, it's one more chance for me to enlighten my peers. It's one more chance for me to share the message from the heart of the Indigenous people of North America into a society, that a group of people that are willing to listen and, and learn from a people who have not had the opportunity to share very much. Mm-hmm. It, it really, it's inspiring to me because, you know, my father was a great orator. I've never really considered myself a great orator. I just do what I have to do. And, and I just believe that God will use what I'm doing. And I try to, you know, stay humble about it because as soon as I start getting even a slight bit arrogant, I, I seem to have a trip. You know? <laughs> and 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 it's not it's not always the nicest thing. So it's just good to just take things and just keep moving forward and be be faithful and be honest and and but I'm I'm excited about it because it's a great open door, hopefully, into spheres of influence that are from all over the world that can help to my heart isn't just for first nations it's for all mankind right because we're all god's kids and in order for us to see jesus's return we have to do our job here and our job is to carry the message in truth carry the message in love and and do it in such a way that that people actually see the hope and the potential of of who what loving Jesus is all about. Amen to that. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm always excited when there is another John on this podcast, but especially today. <laughs> I think the things you have shared are profound, and I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in person. And I'm sure many people who are listening to this will be asking you questions. Uh, I heard that you will be there on the first day. Is that correct? Whatever day that I have written on my calendar, I guess it could be the first day. And I think that it is a day right before I leave on a tour somewhere the next day. So (laughs) So it's in Toronto, right? Yes, it's in Toronto. So you guys have heard it here first. He might be going on tour. So you don't want to miss that opportunity to connect with Jonathan. And so thank you so much for, for giving of your time to be on this podcast. And I think there's so much to think about and so much to chew on, especially in thinking about how songs, stories, the gifts God has given us, and how that can all be used to be part of his work of reconciliation, restoration, and to even approach and remember injustice and to be able to see God work in that and to bring about justice. All right. Thank Thank you so much for your time. Blessings to you, and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. 
All right. Me too. And thank you guys all for listening to us today on this podcast episode. Looking forward to hearing from you guys, your feedbacks and your thoughts, whether it's at the conference, which will be October 3rd to 5th, or online. You can reach us through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by email. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast that continues to help us get this conversation out there. And please share it with others, especially for those you think that this would be a good way to engage in some of the questions and thoughts we have. Now, often we play our theme music to end off our episode, but today, Jonathan Miracle has given us permission to share some of his music. So this is a song that he has written and performed, and we hope that it will be a blessing to you as you listen to it. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. Now to play us out, this is Ride the Wind by Jonathan Miracle and Broken Walls. When the wind of the Spirit blows, warrior, come on and ride the wind. When the wind of the Spirit blows, warrior, come on and ride the wind. When the wind of the Spirit blows, warrior, come on and ride the wind. When the wind of the Spirit blows, warrior, come on and ride the wind. When the Oh